I want to thank all of you for allowing me to join you again this weekend. I know this isn't optimal, and we'd all prefer to be together back again at our campuses, but you know something? God is still at work, and he's still using even this pandemic to glorify himself by causing us, you and me, to focus even more on prayer and seeking his face. And I love what I even see happening with our kids. I have found out that a lot of our kids are joining their families and listening to the messages. In fact, this past week, a young lady sent in an amazing art craft work that she did. She made five different boats as a reminder of what I spoke about in the message last weekend. That is that there are some things we need to leave behind in our boats in order to be able to move forward with God. Bad things as well as good things that can get in the way. So I thought that was really creative and I appreciated being able to see what she came up with. It was also kind of fun to hear from a younger child who, when they heard me talking about God's glorious presence and how God came before Moses in the burning bush, she ran and grabbed the Bible storybook and remembered the picture in it and shared it with her family, who then shared it with me as well. So kids, great job. Stay involved. And in the coming week, you're going to be hearing about a new program that I'm creating called Sermon Bucks. Now, Sermon Bucks are a way that you can accrue certain points by taking a little quiz at the end of every message. You can do it on your own. Or your parents can help you. And you're going to accumulate points that you can then spend at our Sermon Buck store and there you'll be able to redeem it for some pretty cool prizes that I'll help pick out, all right? So stay tuned for that and keep joining us. Well, in preparation for the message this weekend, I remembered a poem from long ago. And I want to share it with you. I've edited it a little bit. And it goes something like this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, just enough to equal like a, a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. Not enough to cause me to have to love somebody I don't like. Just enough for a little bit of ecstasy in my life. Not a transformation. The warmth of the womb. Not a new birth. Yep, I'd like to get a pound of God in a brown paper bag. I'd like to buy three dollars worth of God. Let me ask you a question that I am asking myself as well. How much of God do you want? Or if you are part of the Wooddale community and joining us this weekend, how much of God do we want as the Wooddale Church? Well, he wanted a double portion. I'm talking about this wild man of a prophet named Elisha. Now, to get the story straight, you actually have to go back to 1 Kings chapter 19 and kind of begin reading toward the end there. I'll let you do that on your own. But God had spoken to his primary prophet, a man by the name of Elijah, who was even more of a wild man, and told Elijah that he was going to take him up to heaven and to go find Elisha and to tell him that he was going to replace Elijah. So off Elijah went, and when he found Elisha in a true fashion of a prophet, Elijah took off his outer garment, his mantle, and he threw it across Elisha's shoulders and in essence said to him, you are the next primary prophet that God is going to speak through. And Elijah began to mentor Elisha. 
Well, one day Elijah told Elisha, I think I'm going up. What do you want from me? Now, here's what happens in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. It says, when they had crossed the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit, small s, on me. In other words, I want to be twice the man that you were, Elijah. I want to be just as close or closer to God. I want God to give me double the courage you had, double the power that, that you had in your life. And I'm not sure Elijah was expecting that request because Elijah says to Elisha, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but he says, I tell you what, if you see me departing, being taken up to God, then your prayer is going to be answered. And that's when that chariot swung down low and split between the two prophets and took Elijah up. And Elisha cried out. He said, my father, my father, the chariot, the charioteers of Israel. In other words, I saw it. I'm getting it. And he ends up picking up the mantle that Elijah had on. And he puts it on himself. And he's never the same man again. 120 followers of Jesus, including the apostles, were gathered together there in Acts chapter 2 waiting as Jesus instructed them to for the Holy Spirit to come in. And suddenly, in a hurricane kind of force, the Holy Spirit showed up, dramatically changed their lives forever. And not only their lives, but your life and my life as well. You know, if Elisha received a double portion of what Elijah had, they and you and me, we receive all that Jesus has. Let's look at this passage in Galatians chapter 4 that reminds us of that. We've seen it before. It says, and because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit, not a small s, right? Like the Spirit of Elijah, but has sent the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, of his Son, into our hearts prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So everything that belongs to him now belongs to you and belongs to me. What an awesome thing. You might be thinking to yourself, but, but isn't that just really for the apostles and those those you know, first few disciples who are following Jesus, is that really for, for me as well? The answer to the question is absolutely. When you put your faith in Jesus, well, look what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says, we have all been, that includes you and me, baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So I share the same spirit living in my life that Paul did. I had the same spirit living in my life that Peter did. We all share the same spirit. It's as though Jesus went up, kind of like Elijah, and threw down his mantle, and his mantle is the very spirit of God. And that raises a really important question, and that is how much of God do you know and are you experiencing in your life? And strangely, the answer to that question is, how much of you does God have a hold of? 
Or if you want to tie it together in a principle that kind of sums up the big idea of what we're talking about here, it goes like this. If you want all of God, you must surrender all of your life to his presence and to his power. If I want all of God, then I've got to understand God wants all of me. And to the degree that he has all of me, I'm going to experience his fullness living in and upon my life. And as a church, as a community, the more we all want more of God together, the more we experience his presence when we're in community together. Even when we are dispersed, we're still his church. And so those of you joining us who may not be officially part of Wooddale Church, I want you to know that you're part of us, we're part of you. If you're a follower of Christ, we're all part of truly what is his church. All those who place their faith in Christ. But it begs the question, and the question is, well, how do I get to that place where God has all of me? Now, we started answering that a little bit last weekend. We said we need to repent, wait and repent. We need to depend on God and actualize his presence. But let's press that a little further. And actually what we're looking at, you could almost see it as evidences or an evidence in your life and my life of having fully surrendered to the Lord. So let's look at three ways to do that. The first principle is simply this. You and I have got to be willing to move in the direction of God's ruach. So I know I can't hear you necessarily, but I think it'd be kind of fun there in your apartment or your home or wherever you might be, even if you're by yourself, to just say that Hebrew word ruach with me. Ready? One, two, three. Ruach. I could almost hear you. I miss hearing you. All right? But by faith, I believe you said it. Ruach. What's, what's ruach mean? What's well, the Hebrew word for wind? And sometimes it is used to describe God's spirit, which is like a wind. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3? The spirit's like the wind. It comes and it goes. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't always know where it is going. So the Ruach is God's holy wind. Now let me draw your attention to a peculiar passage at the end of the Gospel of John. In chapter 20, the disciples are held up in a room. They're on a uh, self-imposed lockdown, social distancing from the enemies of Jesus, who they think might be coming for them next. They've heard about the resurrection. They're struggling with whether it's real or not. We talked a little bit about that last weekend. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in their midst. He says, peace be with you. And look what happens next. It says there in John chapter 20, verse 22, then he breathed on them, right? There's that breath. There's that wind. And they received the Holy Spirit. They received the Ruach of God. So I thought they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They did. And they did here as well. And it became this reality, this growing reality. He became this growing reality in their lives. You know, when I, when I read that passage of how Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit, I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 2 where we find out that Jesus, the creator, that's what Hebrews tells us, all right? And Colossians talks about it. Jesus, who creates the first human being out of the dust of the ground. It says there in Genesis chapter 2 that he breathed into him the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. 
And I just love what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, we've been breathed into again, but this time it's more than just, you know, our little spirit. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So Christ, the Spirit, breathes into us this, this new life, this ruach of God. But let me ask you a question. When, a wind, when the wind blows, just the normal wind blows, it always blows in a certain direction, doesn't it? The wind always goes a certain direction. So when God blows his ruach, when the Spirit blows into our life, what direction does the ruach of God blow towards? Now, I love the answer of a rabbi. I love reading the rabbis. This rabbi says that the wind of God always blows in a holy direction. So if I'm moving with God, I'm always going to be moving with God toward holiness, toward holiness. I took up uh, road biking a couple of years ago, and I prefer to stay on paved paths. I'm too afraid to be out on the roads. I've heard too many stories of people getting run over. And uh, once a year, I try to do a 100-mile ride. And when I'm doing that and the wind is to my back, I really, I enjoy it because I can look around and enjoy the scenery. I pedal faster, I go further, and I expend less energy because the wind, so to speak, is carrying me. But every once in a while, I'll get stuck pedaling into a headwind. And I'm telling you what, there's nothing enjoyable about pedaling into a strong headwind. I mean, you can't enjoy the scenery. You got to try to keep your head down in aerodynamic form. You're expending a tremendous amount of energy. And sometimes, honestly, if it's a really strong wind, I, I feel like I'm pedaling in place. I'm actually not going anywhere. Well, you can either be going with God in the direction he wants to take you into obedience, which is holiness, or you could be pedaling against God in disobedience. And when that happens, it is draining, isn't it? It's fatiguing in your life. It's frustrating in your life. I've been thinking about that in really practical terms. And I thought I'd share something that maybe a lot of us can relate to. You know, I've had, I've had to spend a whole lot more time at home than I'm normally used to. And in fact, uh, Marcia, before this pandemic, was saying things to me like, you're hardly ever at home. Lately, she's been saying, oh, you're here again? So I've been spending a lot of time at, at home. And, and I don't know about you, but maybe you're there with your spouse and your kids, all right? And everybody's kind of getting cooped up, and the weather's kind of getting nice, and you really can't go certain places. And it's just possible that you might be getting on each other's nerves a little bit. In fact, I know I got on my wife's nerves this weekend. And I said and did some things in response that I shouldn't have. I was not pedaling in the direction of holiness, friends. I was pedaling in the wrong direction. And I could feel when I said what I said that, oh my goodness, that was wrong. It made there, it caused tension. And eventually I just, had to, I just had to say, honey, I need to apologize to you. My response, my action was not right. Will you forgive me? And I start pedaling in the right direction again. Let me ask you a question. Are you pedaling in the direction of holiness right now? Or are you pedaling against holiness? Are you pedaling with a spirit of bitterness or anger or frustration? 
Is there something going on in your life right now that you know grieves the Holy Spirit? It's not the direction the Spirit of God wants you to go. Then I want to remind you, like we talked a little bit about last weekend, repent. Turn around and go in the direction of holiness, the direction the Spirit of God wants to take you. But that, that causes an idea to come to my mind and that is, just because I'm pedaling in the direction that God wants me to go doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to face a headwind. I mean, the truth is, sometimes when you go with God, you actually end up facing a pretty stiff headwind caused by the enemy or caused by this broken, sinful world we live in, whether it's a pandemic or somebody's persecution or oppression or bad attitude not always easy to go with God. Sometimes you get a lot of blowback as a response. And we try to avoid that as much as possible. But, you know, if we really understand how God works, you'll discover that oftentimes when you face that stiff headwind coming at you that's, that's not of God necessarily, God can still use that to really lift your life up. So that takes us to our second principle, and that is in order to really understand what it means to be full of the Spirit of God, to experience His fullness and His presence, I need to rely by faith on the power of God to lift me above my adversity or to lift you above whatever adversity you're facing. A dear friend of mine is an accomplished pilot. And I was talking to him the other day, and I said to him, I've heard that pilots you know, they, they, they like to take off into the wind. That's, that's what's preferred. That's why, you know, oftentimes the flight pattern will change on the runway is to, is to put the planes into the wind. Then, in fact, the stronger the wind is, the less runway you need and the, and, and the greater and the, and the quicker you get the lift. And he said to me, that's, that's true. However, it's all based on one very important thing, Dale. He said, you, you've got to have engines that are powerful enough to propel you forward faster than the wind that's coming at you. So the faster you face that, the faster you go than that headwind that's coming at you, yes, you can get up a lot quicker, a lot faster. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that God can even take the adversity that we face in life brought on by a broken world and broken bodies and God can bring good out of that. Though he may not be the author of it, he can bring good out of it nonetheless. You know, there's a story in Luke chapter 8 that I, that I love in the Gospels where Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat and let's head to the other side. And Jesus is just exhausted. He's tired and he falls asleep in the back of the boat and this terrible storm comes up. <clears throat> and these experienced sailors they're fearful for their lives. And it's a really bad storm. The boat's starting to fill up with water. And they find Jesus. They can't believe he's sleeping. They wake him up. And they say, don't you care? We're all going to drown. And Jesus gets up. And it says he rebukes the wind. And he rebukes the raging waves. And all of a sudden there's calm. And I love his question. He looks at them. And he looks at me. And he looks at you. And he asks, where is your faith? In other words, where, guys, where are you putting your faith right now? I'm here. See, the Spirit of God is the engine in our life. And when I put my faith in 
the engine of the spirit of my life, he always has far more thrust and power than anything the world can send my way. And if I'll dial into him, if I'll trust him, God's going to lift me above and past my adversity and circumstances. Now, I understand because I've flown enough that, you know, sometimes on the way up, you go through some turbulence to finally get above it. And you might be going through some of that turbulence right now, but the point is put your faith in Christ. Paul faced a lot of turbulence in his life. But, you know, at the end of his life, he tells us, and we looked a little bit at it last weekend, he tells us what he learned and discovered. He says in, Philippi in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, and maybe you can read it aloud with me there in your home, your apartment, wherever you might be. Let's, let's read it aloud together. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Again, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. High five each other in your living room, would you? Or wherever you happen to be watching right now. If you're by yourself, high five yourself, all right? Look what it says. It says, I can do everything, all right? But, but it's through Christ. So that's where my faith has to be. Who gives me what? gives me the strength that I need, right? So just like the pilot is resting on the strength of those engines, we're resting on the strength that Christ gives to us. The apostle John, he also faced a lot of opposition and headwinds, and he knew that the church around him was as well. So when he wrote to the church, he wrote something he discovered as well. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he said, but you belong to God. Please don't forget that. You belong to God. My dear children, you have already won a victory over those people. So, I mean, isn't this true for most of us? Isn't most of the headwind, the opposition we face, people, right? Because the Spirit who lives in you, so there we go again, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit, small spirit, who lives in the world. All right, so the engine in your life is greater than the engine of the enemy. So the question comes back to us, where, Jesus says, where are you putting your faith right now? And I've been thinking a lot about that as we're facing this pandemic. Where am I going to put my faith? If, you know, if I put my faith in the government, if I put my faith in people, I don't care how good they are, they're going to fail me at some point. They're humans. They're, they're sinful, right? If I put my faith in anybody other than Christ and Christ alone, I'm going to get let down. So where is your faith? All right? Let's look at a third principle. And the third principle goes like this. We need to learn to fearlessly proclaim his love to whomever will listen. Now think about that. If I want to know the fullness of God's presence working in and through me, then I've got to learn to fearlessly proclaim His love to whomever will listen. Say, I, what do you mean by that, Pastor Dale? Well, let's go back to the whole scene there at Pentecost. Remember the Spirit comes rushing in with like a hurricane force. And settles on the 120, and they suddenly begin speaking in the mother tongue of many different people groups that had settled from all over the Roman Empire 
there in Jerusalem. So they were all hearing the presentation of the gospel, it says in Acts 2, right? The things that God had done, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in their own mother tongue. And they were absolutely astounded and amazed by it, which raised the question in my mind, and that is, why? Why all those separate languages? Why, why didn't God just, why didn't he have them just speak in the Greek, which everybody kind of understood? It was the trade language of the day. Everybody knew Greek. Well, to answer that question, you kind of got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. In Genesis, chapter 11, there was a time when humanity spoke all the same language. And they, gra- they, uh, they gathered together on the plains of Shinar, it says, and they decided to build this tower up to heaven. You've heard of the Tower of Babel, right? So they begin to build this tower up in one language, in unity, and it says, in order to make a name for themselves. It was a slap in the face of God. Really, it was a fist in the face of God. We don't know. We don't need you. We can handle this ourselves. We will be our own gods. And it says that the Lord came down and he confused their languages so they couldn't understand each other. And he scattered them. Isn't it interesting at Pentecost, the Lord comes down, but he doesn't give them all the same language because God loves every race, every language, and the redeemable things in unique cultures. In fact, it says in Revelation chapter 7, someday every tongue and every tribe is going to stand before God. Have you ever thought about that? What language are we going to speak in heaven? You probably thought it was English. (laughs) It'll be whatever language you speak and know, hear it. The beautiful thing is, no matter what language is being spoken, we will all hear it in what we understand. Have you ever thought about this? What color are we going to be in heaven? Because we're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to have the color that we have here on earth. Because God loves the spectrum of what and who he created. And I think there's going to be distinctives in culture. Maybe for the first time I'll be able to eat spicy food and not get indigestion. I I don't know. But here's my point, all right? Even though many languages, he gives us us unity through one message. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 4 through 6. This is very special. Watch this. He says, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, he says, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now look at this. Who is over all, in all, and living through all. That's the Holy Spirit. So no matter where I come from on earth, no matter what language I speak, no matter what race I'm from, no matter what beautiful color of skin I have, no matter what my culture is, when I come to Christ, when you come to Christ, we are part of God's family. And what unifies us is this one spirit who lives in us and lives through us. I don't know, I just, that just takes on greater beauty for me when I see it in light of what happened at Pentecost and what God is still wanting to do in our world. And so when I hear that and I say that out loud to myself, I'm thinking maybe one of the things I need to repent of is how I might look down on other cultures or how I look down on other people. Maybe one of the things I need to repent of is how I add to disunity in the church rather than unity in the church. 
And you know how we add to disunity in the church? When we get our eyes off Jesus and we get our eyes on each other. And we start nitpicking at, at each other because we see the faults in each other's lives. Maybe during this time while we're apart, before we come back together again, we need to ask God to heal that, forgive us of that in our lives, so that when we come back together in community, we're unified because we're not thinking anymore about what's wrong. We're thinking about what's right about each of us. And what's right about each of us is this Spirit of Christ living in us. But you know, as you keep reading there in Acts chapter 2, not everybody was thrilled about hearing these people speak their own languages. Some people were saying, ah, they're drunk. And Peter goes on in his sermon right after that, and he says, no, 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 wait a minute. It's 9 a.m. in the morning, all right? They're not drunk. But I beg to, di uh, to differ with Peter. They were drunk. Not drunk with alcohol. They were drunk in the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 18, that be not drunk with wine. Don't be soaked with wine, is what he's saying. But be soaked with, be inebriated with, be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a difference between being filled or drunk with wine and being filled and drunk with the Spirit. When you are drunk with wine or alcohol, alcohol's a suppressant. That doesn't mean that, uh, or a depressant. It doesn't mean that it depresses you. It, it means that it depresses the areas of your brain that would normally cause you to think in a rational, logical way. That's why when people get drunk, sometimes they say and do things that afterwards they would never say and do if they were sober, and they're embarrassed afterwards, or they end up in all kinds of trouble afterwards. They are careless because they are drunk with alcohol, not drunk with the Spirit. When you are drunk with the Spirit, when you are filled with the Spirit, Listen, you don't lose your intelligence. When you're filled with the Spirit, you know what's going on around you. You know what's going on in you. But rather than being careless, you become fearless. I mean, it wasn't that long ago these people were hiding, worried about what the authorities would say and do to them. And when they're filled with the Spirit, oh my goodness, they become fearless in proclaiming the gospel. They become fearless in talking about Jesus who lived and died and rose again. And now there's forgiveness of sin and victory over death. They're excited about it. They can't wait to tell others. You know, that's our vision as a church. To impart the hope of the gospel here, near and far. To let people know that God loves them. And listen, folks, just because we're in this pandemic, just because we're not able to meet together, doesn't mean that we've thrown the vision aside we're going to sit on our hands. No, not at all. We're going to press forward in that vision in some unique and creative ways. In fact, I, I heard a story from last weekend that really encouraged me. Somebody heard the message, and they heard me talk about the fact that we might not be able to come together for some time. And they said, you know, at first I was a little bit upset with you when I heard that. But the more I listened, she said, the more excited I got. And I realized, you know what? My cul-de-sac can become my church. Yes, that's what it's all about. When you start believing that your cul-de-sac, your neighborhood, your community can become your church, that's when we're being the church. And that is the greatest evidence. That is the most powerful evidence. Being filled with the Spirit. Knowing His presence. We move with this ruach 
We don't let adversity get us down, but we rise above it because we have greater faith in Christ. And we realize the only reason I've been left here is to make him known. Hey, listen, I have a question for you. How much of God do you want? Let's pray. God, I just pray that even in this time when we're going through these hardships, that, Lord, it wouldn't diminish our appetite, our desire for you, but it would stoke it. It would increase it. And we want more of you by giving you all of ourselves. Lord, help us to move in your direction. Forgive us if we've been moving against it. Forgive us if we've gotten grumpy because we're cooped up, Lord. We're sorry. God, help us to not get our eyes on people and circumstances and institutions. Help us keep our eyes on Jesus. And God, help us begin to love our neighbors, pray for our neighbors. When we're allowed to see more people at a time, help us begin to look for ways to reach out to our neighbors, God. And God, help us to claim our cul-de-sacs for Christ, our neighborhoods for Christ, our communities for Christ. I pray that we come back, Lord. We'll be bringing back lots of people with us. Well, Lord, maybe, maybe we'll stay where we are because you call us to start a church where we are. That would be the best. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're going to have more information uh, coming out in the weeks ahead about how you might make your cul-de-sac your new church. And uh, that would be exciting. Not all of you be called to that. I know that. But God may lay it on the hearts of some of you, and I'm excited. In the meantime, would you just hang in there a few more minutes because I'm going to ask Pastor Kyle and Pastor Heather to share with you a pretty exciting story. I'll see you next weekend. God bless all of you.